Hello, I'm Tracy Challoner. Welcome to the Life Education Podcast Series. Today we're joined again by Hugh van Kylenberg, founder of The Resilience Project, a mental health and wellbeing program that's been adopted by hundreds of schools, businesses and sporting teams across Australia. Hugh's working life began as a school teacher, and these days he's one of Australia's most sought-after mental health advocates. He believes that focusing on three simple principles, gratitude, empathy and mindfulness, can dramatically change the way we look at life. This is part two of my chat with Hugh, and I asked him how we can bring more mindfulness and positivity into our lives and help our children do the same. Hugh, the world that our kids are growing up in is very different to the one we grew up in. It feels a lot faster for one thing. A lot of parents are concerned about the constant presence of social media in kids' lives, Mm. which has added to what I call this compare and despair phenomenon, the perception that everyone else's life is perfect and our own is less than, which is so not true. Um, And there's also, of course, the role that social media plays in body image issues and bullying, not to mention just the time that it can suck out of your day. Having worked in schools for so long, what do you see as the risks of screen addiction and what strategies can parents adopt to stop technology from impacting on kids' mental health? I feel so grateful that I grew up before social media and before devices. Me too. Because I see kids, I I compete in athletics and so I see kids and teenagers and people in their young 20s competing and just their team sport or or their competitive sport. And I see them on their phone beforehand. I see them on their phone. As soon as they finish the race, I go and sit on their phone. And I think back to what it was like for me as a kid running around an ass track. It was you finish your race and then you go and sit with people and you just talk to them and you hang out and you make plans for the day and, you, yeah. and you're just there. But I just think, my gosh, I know I, I, my career club that I played for for many years, I watched them have a really wonderful win last season. I went into the changing rooms afterwards and um, to expecting raucous scenes. And I went in there and it was just dead silence because everyone was on their yeah. phone. And, <laughs> and there's a man in their young, early 20s. And I was thinking, no, this is where you, this is connection time. This is where you connect. Like, Did you ask them to put their phones away? Um, yeah, yeah. I, I started collecting them. <laughs> Good on you. <laughs> <laughs> just, um, but um, uh, I was only off a few. I went and took a few of them off them to make the point. They all knew. But I do a lot of work with Port Adelaide Football Club. I, I don't, I, I, I love. Port Adelaide Football Club, a wonderful group of people, but they, they actually came up with a rule last season that no phones after the game for an hour so they could just connect afterwards. But mm-hmm. what I've seen in schools, I think, to come back to the question, I feel extremely sad for kids who are growing up in this. And I don't blame parents at all for putting their kids in front of devices. Mm. I, I completely understand because you're able to look after your own sanity and, and mental health a bit more when you can just have a bit of peace and quiet. And, you know, when I go to work and my wife needs to have a shower and she's got a six-month-old and a three-and-a-half-year-old, um, you know, having a shower is a luxury. But if she puts the three-and-a-half-year-old in front of a cartoon about dinosaurs for five minutes, she can have a shower. Yeah, we've all done that. <laughs> so, yeah, so you just – it's this constant – but then you feel guilty about it and think, I shouldn't be doing this. I mean, the thing is – the, the biggest problem for mine is that kids are never bored anymore mm. and, th- and they need to be bored because when you're bored, that's when you um, learn to be creative. Exactly. And that, that's where all creativity has come from, is from boredom and kids are never bored anymore. So we need to find that balance between, yeah, we look after ourselves, but make sure, allow your kids to be bored so they have to go and create something. I um, saw my son the other day playing, um, but he hasn't played, he's not great at playing by himself. He always wants us to play with him and, and um and I saw him playing by himself the other day because I kept saying, no, no, I can't, I can't play with you. I've got to do this, got to do this. 
I was feeling guilty about it. And then I realized about five minutes later, he was playing with these dinosaurs and he was inventing this game. And I thought, so that's the perfect example. Like I've got to let him be bored more. Um, and I think it speaks more broadly to this this issue of screens in that um, we can justify and say, oh, it's educational. They're watching, you know, whatever it is, this is educational. But I, I still think they're not challenging. They're not being challenged enough to be creative. Yeah. And I, I think I think that's what we need to, you know, when I was a, I was a kid, I would often, you know, I, I, heard, I heard a very good friend of mine, and I won't say his name because he'd be shattered if this was <laughs> made public, but I heard a friend of mine the other day say to his son, um, do you have to be on the iPad watch, while you're watching television? Just watch television. Yeah. And I, was, and I was thinking, gosh, when we were kids, that was get off, um, turn the television off and go outside. Yeah. Um, and then, and that was, you know, they're my, they are my happiest memories by far, being outside in my backyard at home, playing basketball, cricket, mm-hmm. chasing, my, um, chasing my brother or sister around. They're my happiest memories. I, I don't think there'll be kids in 20 years' time saying, oh, my happiest memories were sitting in front of the iPad on the couch. <laughs> yeah, know? scrolling through your phone, looking at Instagram or whatever, Snapchat. Yeah, totally. But I, but I also think, Tracy, the, one of the probably most important thing to acknowledge is that um, we are, as adults, we are the bigger problem because we are modelling these poor behaviours to our kids all the time. I mean, we say we don't want them on their device and get off your device, but we turn around and we we're on our, we're sending emails at nine o'clock at night in front of them, or we're checking Facebook at seven thirty night while we're getting dinner ready. Um, if if you want to influence someone's behaviour, you got to model the behaviours, and that means putting your phone away and not showing them how much you check it, because we're all addicted to it. Most of us are addicted to our devices, but it sends a very poor message to our kids, and they're not going to listen to us if we're saying get off your phone, and then we turn around and checking Facebook at you know at, you know at the dinner table, whatever it is. So so we we have to start setting better examples. And you're right, we can lead by example, can't we? And you've also proposed something, Hugh, that almost seems quite radical, leaving home without your phone. Well, yeah, we have to undo a lot of the things that our phone has trained us to do. So we rely on it for, I mean, right now, if I think about, there aren't many places I can go without my phone because I, 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 I use my phone to pay for things now. I use my phone to navigate where I'm going. I use my phone for all types of music. Um, so I've had to try and unwind the things I've become reliant on. To So now I'm limited to when I go to the park with my son, don't need my phone. Uh, going for a run, I've now got a watch so I can measure my run watch or whatever. I don't need my phone then. Um, and I'm trying to increase the amount of things I can do without my phone. And it is such a – you get a bit anxious at first. And there's quite a few times you think, oh, I could really do my phone right now. I do need it. But you're going to survive. Like we've lived with them for many years without them. We don't, we don't, we don't need them everywhere we go. Um, and I almost, um, especially during the summer, I was really getting a kick from the more um, <laughs> outrageous, you know, like, like the bigger the trip out of the house out of my phone, the more excited I'd get and the more. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if I could go to a social gathering for three or four hours and not take my phone. <laughs> It was a huge win. I'd go, my gosh, I did it. That's great. And, you know, I'd take a wallet and I would have cre- credit cards, fancy that, and, and pay for things with a credit card. And, and, um, and I would work out in my head how to get there beforehand without relying on Google Maps. So, wow. um, but, but I, I think every time I did it, I think the point is every single time I did it, I made greater connections because the second I got, I felt shy. So in a social sitting, setting, if I, if I arrived somewhere a bit early and I didn't know too many people where I was going, the default scene is to grab your phone and just sit on your phone until you know people, which will arrive that you know a bit better. Mm. But it actually forced me to go and talk to people. And it was the connections I made were fantastic. We're put on the earth to connect. Yeah. Connection is, is a great source of, of um, a great strategy for, for good mental health. You make a social connection 
or emotional connection with someone, it is so good for you. Makes you feel happy. Your phones are stopping. Yeah. It does. Yeah. It really does. Um, so... Great strategies, Hugh. I'm going to try that. I'm going to delete my Facebook from my phone. <laughs> oh, you have to do that. That's just an absolute. Um, I mean, they are, honestly, they're the masters. They are the masters of sucking us into our phone. Um, I haven't been on Facebook for two and a half years. I haven't missed it for a second, um, and I am better off because of it. Mm, I can well believe it. One of the simple things that you urge people to do is write down three things that went well each day as part of a gratitude journal. And there's a lot of science and research behind this too, isn't there? How will doing this simple activity change our brains over a period of time? Well, it, it rewires your brain to scan the world for the positive. So um, the average person, I don't want to get this wrong, um, I believe the negativity bias, people can look this up, but it says we're seven times more likely to notice a negative than a positive. Mm. And we all, know, we all know what that feels like. We walk around the world and and uh, something goes wrong and we pay attention to it or something kind of threatens our ego a bit and we, we, we get really down about that. Um, something good happens, oh, that's nice, but we move on pretty quickly. If every single night you record three things that went well for you during the day, and, and not huge things, I'm talking about little things, like it could be, um, you know, you have a nice coffee or you um, get a nice text message from your sister or your brother and you weren't expecting it. If you do that every single day, you actually rewire your brain to be someone who walks around scanning the world for the positives. Um, and that makes you a happier person. Uh, at a very basic level. It creates more positive emotion. That makes you more resilient. It stands to reason. And even just at the dinner table as a family, you can, even if you don't write it down, you can just recap the best thing that happened during the day. I know we try to do this with our kids and sometimes they look at you like, oh, mum and dad, that's just so cheesy. <laughs> but, you know, it does strike up some interesting conversations. Usually someone ends up laughing, someone says something funny and, and it's a great way just to get everyone talking. Otherwise, it's like, what'd you do today? Mm. Nothing, totally. you know. <laughs> totally. No, that's, it's exactly right. And, I mean, there's an episode of Bluey now called Favourite Things, and it's all about the conversation around the dinner table. What was your favourite thing that happened today? Um, and my, I, as I said to you before, I, I do this in my son every night in, in bed. We talk about our favourite things that happened during the day. Um, and I know that when he gets older, it's going to be lame. It's going to be cheesy. He's not going to want to do it. But, you know, that's that's part of being a teenager, just kind of rebelling against your parents' <laughs> ideals and values for a bit and, and not liking what they do. But when when our teenagers decide to come back to us and be normal human beings again, um, the values that we model, you know, throughout those years will have a huge impact on the person they decide they want to be when they grow up. So um, often it's not about it's, it's not about forcing you. I have a lot of people saying, oh, there's no way my 16-year-old son will do this. Well, don't force him to. You don't want to push him. You don't want, you don't want this activity to... <laughs> To, you know, put put a gap between the two of you. Just just discuss it with your partner or the other kids, or talk about it yourself. And and they don't have to participate, but they'll listen. And I'm sure they'll think about it in their head. They may not participate, but they will. But they will at least think about it. Yeah, and at least it shows you're interested in their lives, doesn't it? Yeah, totally, totally. I mean, the, I mean, the other thing to do if they're not going to, uh, if if you've got a uh, teenage boys are the ones who are who are least likely to do this. But mm -hmm. uh, if, if you're having no luck with them, just let them know that. Um, Billy Slater does this every night and so does Dustin Martin. So we've got both <laughs> codes covered there um, and uh, two quite insp inspirational sports people. That, that tends to have an impact. I don't know why, but it does. I'll have to try that with my teenage boys. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Hugh, I found it incredibly moving to read in your book that a number of high-profile footy players, talking about footy players, have reached out to you in recent years to, to say that the Resilience Project talk is the one thing that kept them from committing suicide. When you receive feedback like that, it must be a pretty powerful motivation for you to continue the work that you're doing. It is because it's been 10 years now and I, 
I, I, I, um, I have gone through a stage where I've been completely burnt out and completely exhausted and just, and um, I've been saying to everyone, wherever I go, no matter who you are, no matter how you feel, you should go and see a psychologist. Even if you're a happy person, you should always work on yourself. So I've, I've took me a while to follow my own advice, but I've been seeing a psychologist recently and just talking about this, you know, I do, I do a similar talk, you know, two, three times a day for 10 years and I'm exhausted from it. And, but then I feel this burden, not burden, but I feel responsibility to keep doing it because I know that it's, well, I've been told by people it's saving lives and trying to work out the balance there has been really fascinating for me because sometimes I get out of bed and go, I just can't, <laughs> I just can't do this anymore. I can't do this talk. I've, yeah, I can understand um, but, that. But then the second I get up there in front of a group and I see it hitting home for, you know, it might be, there's a, there's a football club up in Queensland. I did a, um, in New South Wales, I did a talk for, um, and it was, I remember when I walked in, this was a few years ago, but I remember just thinking, my gosh, they don't want me here, that they, this is not the kind of thing they're up for. But I remember one of the players just sat there staring at me and he refused to look either side of him so no one could see him, but he's had tears just streaming down his face the whole 60 minutes. He just cried the whole way through. Um, and mm-hmm. he sent me a, or he sent me a message about a month later and said, it said, um, the host, the rugby league players, I was called your brother. He said, um, brother, you saved my life. And that's all. He didn't want to give me context around that. He didn't, we didn't go into exploring it or talking about it any further. He just said, brother, you saved my life. I don't know what was happening there, but mm. that, like that simple message or seeing him like that makes me think, and uh, I've got a lot more energy in this. Oh, <laughs> I've got a lot more energy for this stuff. So, yeah, yeah it's, I, I, it's funny. It's um, a lot of these elite sports people I still – there's a there's a sports psychologist that I that I um have a great deal of time for and we often discuss why this stuff is so powerful for them. There's a whole lot of different theories that he's come up with, but um often their existence has been about um toughen up, don't show any pain, mental or physical. Um the 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 tougher the you know, you just gotta put on a mask, you turn up to the club, leave your stuff at the door, don't burden us with it. Um and when someone gives them permission to say, Poor, do you know what, I'm actually not okay. It's like this huge release, um, you know, pressure release for them, or like this valve sort of releases everything. Oh, <laughs> um, yeah. So we have we have a lot of tears in our um, probably more than any other group. I think is the elite sporting group where I see people crying the most. Incredible feedback it really shows the impact of the program. Now that you've become a parent yourself, has that reinforced to you even more the need to help young people in particular get the tools they need to live a happier and more fulfilling life? Yeah, it's, I find it fascinating because I, I, I'm watching my three, I mean, Elsie's too young now, but Benji, my three and a half, I'm just watching his behaviour so closely and probably too closely and I'm watching how he's actually someone who he doesn't respond well when he can't do something and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, he's not resilient. What? <laughs> this, this can't be it. And then uh, that was about six months ago. I was actually quite worried about how, you know, we gave him a scooter and he couldn't do it the first go. So it was toys out of a cot. It was, you know, <laughs> he sulked for hours and it was this, whenever he saw it, he'd kick it over and he, I'd say, try it again. We always try again. We always try again. Um, and he just wouldn't want to bar. And I was thinking, oh my gosh, this is not good. This is not good. And and we tried him at kinder for a bit and he really struggled to to just have some big issues with us leaving. And, and so we decided it wasn't the time. So we'd have to have to try him again next year. And with the, kid, the kinder teacher jokingly, very jokingly said to me, oh, he's not very good for your brand. And I sort of laughed and yeah. And then I went away going, Oh my gosh! What are people saying? Like this is so. I've been really watching him, and um, and he's come through it. You know, six months later, he he he's really he's just a different kid. But um, you know, I, I was talking at schools for for years without kids about parenting, and I always felt a bit silly doing that. But 
now it's just added this whole level of, you know, when I talk about it now, like a certain topic will come, a certain question will come, and I get very emotional about it because I'm, I'm living it mm-hmm. in, in my house. Um, and by the way, the test your own resilience like nothing else. Like this is, parenting is the hardest thing I've ever done in my entire life by so far. Oh. There's nothing comes close to it. I know everyone said to me, oh, it's so hard. Just hang on to your hat. My gosh, wait to you. And I thought, uh, I think you'd be surprised. I'm actually talking about this every day. No, <laughs> nothing could have prepared me for this challenge that we are. Yeah, it is the hardest thing I've ever done Especially by Especially this stage you're at, I think, with, with the, a three-year-old and a baby in the house. That, that's full on. It does get easier though. Yes. <laughs> I, well, everyone keeps saying that. And, and we also, you know, we've got friends who have got babies now and we keep saying to them, don't worry, it gets easier. So, it does every step sense it. But I mean, I someone said to me the other day, big people, big problems. Like they said, the bigger they get, the bigger the problems. The bigger they get, the bigger the problems are. And I, I can understand how that might be the case as well. So, yeah, certainly tested uh, my resilience. That's for sure. I've had moments where, you know, I haven't been proud of my response or my, I, um, uh, or the way I've behaved. And I haven't felt like that since I was a kid. Like I haven't had moments where I've gone. <laughs> I'm ashamed of my behaviour there. <laughs> and I remember the other day catching myself. Um, Benji had just been pushing and pushing and pushing us and I was lying on the floor and, and trying to play a game with him and he, he, he was so upset he hit me in the head for something and I, I was just not happy the way I <laughs> handled it and I felt shame over it. And I thought, I haven't felt shame over my behaviour since I was in primary school. That's how hard this is. <laughs> yeah, parenting really tests you, doesn't it? But I'm sure you and Penny are doing a fantastic job. Well, we're trying hard. <laughs> So, you, what is next for the Resilience Project? It sounds like it's just going from strength to strength. Ten years, that's, that's a great uh, amount of time and you've had such a big impact already. Where do you see it going? Well, it's not quite 40 years as life education. No, <laughs> it's, no. It's 40 years, <laughs> not, not quite 40 years. But, um, yeah, it's, well, I mean, we, we are about um, – for, for many years people have said, oh, you need to turn this into a digital program so that any school can access this at any time. And I – I've been a bit too attached to, you know, it having to be a face-to-face presentation because I know I see people engage emotionally with what we're doing and I've, so I've said, no, 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 they have to – it has to be a 10 out of 10 experience for them to have a um, – people saying, no, why don't you make an 8 or 9 out of 10 experience mm-hmm. and put it on the, to a video? And I've been saying, no, no, it has to be perfect. And um, and my, my little brother's actually a videographer and he does the most extraordinary work with the videos he creates and then – he's been doing a bit of stuff for us and I realised that he can completely redo our presentations. They're, they don't, they're not presentations in schools. They're like almost like television shows he's been creating of Martin Meyer, the other presenter, who's just this extraordinary performer who's, he used to be a deputy principal and, you know, yeah. every every minute I spend with him, I feel like I'm a better person. So I, I thought, well, what, surely we should be putting him on, putting him on a video and getting his digital content out there. So we've created this digital program with him now so that, um, and we think we've got 40 schools trialling it this year, um, and I think we're about 50 next year. Um, in fact, there's a whole region up of far north Queensland are doing the program. The, the, the North Queensland Cowboys with the Primary Health Network are actually paying to have all these schools use the program. Um, and then um, and then I'm doing – I'm actually having the um, digital pro- – my, 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 we're in the process of planning my, my – turning my talk into a series of television shows essentially for kids yeah. from prep to year 12. Yeah. Um, so that we just have to click a button mm. uh, and then any school can have it anywhere. So we're really excited about that. And I, we're always about how do we reach more people? You know, how can we reach, how can we get a greater reach? And what we've discovered is that, um, well, I've known this all along, but I can't go and be in every school. Martin can't go and be in every school. So um, we've just got to think of ways to get the message out there as far away. So the digital content is there. 
Uh, I'm really excited about the podcast. I think podcasts are a wonderful platform for learning when people um, can schedule time. I mean, you understand this better than anyone, but they, they go, right, I've got this half an hour. Yeah. Um, I want to engage in this or this hour. And it's really beautiful when that happens. So um, a pod, our podcast in perfect, I'm loving, but we've got another book on the way as well, which is coming out next year. Um, Gosh. Yeah. And, and then um, I also um, will next year, hopefully be able to do that, the public, the, the, the national tour. I go and speak in all the major cities because, um, that is my absolute, my absolute favourite thing to do is to get up and present in front of an audience. So I, I'm hoping we can do that again next year if the world goes back to normal. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Let's hope so. So 2021, Hugh yes. Van Kylenberg on tour. That's it. That's exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> well, Hugh, it has been so wonderful to chat with you today and I really appreciate your time. It's just uh, it's so great to talk to you about the Resilience Project and get a feel for the, the GEM principles as well. So gratitude, empathy, mindfulness, such a great mantra. I find myself saying it a lot through the day. It's really helpful and I know it's been helpful to a lot of other people as well. So thanks so much for your time today. Oh, it's a pleasure, and I, I congratulations on everything that Life Education does. I said to you before, it was I have very, very fond memories, and even remember the stuff I learnt back as a primary school kid. So, um, and that is, you know, I'm turned forty this year, so that's you know thirty years later, or more than thirty years later. So it's a, an incredible program. Um, so congratulations on everything you guys do as well. Thank you. It's great to have you as an alumni. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Thanks so much, Tracy. Thanks, Hugh. Pleasure. Hugh Van Kylenberg was my guest today. He's the founder of The Resilience Project and author of the book Resilience Project, Finding Happiness Through Gratitude, Empathy and Mindfulness. And you can find out more on The Resilience Project website. This has been another episode of the Life Education Podcast Series for Parents. Feel free to share with a friend and you can become a regular subscriber to our free Life Education Podcasts on all your favourite platforms. I'm Tracy Challoner. Until next time, thanks for joining us.